When most of us think about renewable energy, we think about renewable electricity. But currently only 22% of the energy we consume is the electricity that powers our homes and businesses. Did you know that we use twice that, 44% of the energy we consume in the form of heat? Ireland placed last in the use of renewable energy for heating and cooling among EU countries. But with heat dominating our use of energy, we simply must turn this around. To find out how, I'm talking with two people who are not only thought leaders on the topic of renewable heat, but who work at the coalface of making it a reality. Dr. David Connolly, former CEO of Wind Energy Ireland and now CTO of clean heat provider Astatine, and Donna Gartland, CEO of Dublin's energy agency Codima, who has been driving the development of district heating in Ireland for the best part of a decade. I'm Paddy Finn, and this is the Electricity Exchange. Donna, David, it's great to see you both. Um, so Ireland has done so well on its integration of renewable electricity. Uh, so we feature above average in Europe for the integration of renewable electricity. And when we take out the countries that have the benefit of hydro, which is much easier to integrate than the variable sources that we have, you know, we, we place up there as leaders. But we've placed last in terms of the use of renewable energy for heat. Uh, whereas we use twice as much heat as we use electricity. So when we look at Sweden, Estonia and Finland that have features on top, have they some advantage that we don't have? Or can we learn from what it is that they've done and just replicate it here? Yeah, well, certainly as someone who's probably lived in the electricity and heat worlds in Ireland over the last few years, I think for electricity, the, the big thing was vision and clarity of vision and clarity of purpose. So when you look back on the, the story of getting us to probably, you know, top of the table in the world when it comes to renewable electricity, it probably all started around the late noughties when, you know, I think the All Island Grid study around January 20, 2008 kind of set a vision for 2020. It almost aligned regulators, policymakers, the industry, supply chains on a common vision that enabled everyone to kind of know that this is what's coming, this is what we're trying to deliver, this is what we're trying to achieve, that clarity never came in renewable heat. And I think the reason it didn't is there just wasn't the same common understanding of what needed to be done. In, in a way, for renewable electricity, the answer was obvious. It's windy. You know, wind was incredibly well proven at that stage as, a re, as relative to most renewable energy technologies. Ireland was a relatively windy place, like the probably top two windy places in Europe, and we didn't really have a huge amount of alternatives, whereas there was certainly not that clarity for heat. Like, there was probably a lot of debate about, like, what should we do? And, and I, I would say there is absolutely no reason why we couldn't copy our European neighbours. And on that, is it a case that we, like, we had semi-state utilities to turn to for electricity, but we don't have semi-state heat? So, like, in terms of who you turn to to actually provide the solutions, did... Was it just in terms of the, the avenue to make it a reality that was an easier path with electricity because 
you yeah, would have I'd expert say bodies that you could turn to. We, we probably don't have a dedicated heat semi-state, but we have semi-states incredibly dominant within the heat sector, which would yeah. be primarily Gas Networks Ireland, you could say, for the gas sector. And then for oil, I suppose there's a lot of policy intervention in the oil space, but it would be much more fragmented and privatised than the others. I, like it's, it's interesting when you frame it that way because I remember it came across a document back in 1970s when Ireland had its first ever district energy conference, believe it or not. But it was around the time when we first discovered gas. And I often wonder back to that event, the, the guys who were there, had we not discovered Kinsale Gasfield at that time, could we have gone down a very different route? Because I would imagine once we found the gas resource, the semi-state was created, the gas networks was rolled out. Whereas if you look to the likes of Sweden and Finland, they have almost no gas grids. They, they very much went down the district heating route. And that was very much the foundation of having very high renewable heat shares now. So maybe there was a pivot there where had our semi-state evolved in a different way, our pace could have been very different because you know, we do have semi-states in the renewable heat space but they're, they're, they're in areas that have never been proven to be able to deliver large shares of renewable heat. You know, there, there's no city in Europe or the world that I'm aware of that has any substantial share of renewable heat from a gas point of view. But there is loads of examples of, of district heating systems and, of course, renewable electricity systems that then can be used for heat all around the world that have huge shares of, of renewable energy. So had our semi-state direction of travel gone a bit differently we probably would be in a very different place, but it's not to say they don't exist. You know, there is semi-state companies very involved in the in, in the heat sector. But like you said there, Paddy, the the guys at the top of that European League table of renewable heating and cooling, you know, your Scandinavian countries, your Finland's, Denmark's, um, Sweden's, uh, they're, I suppose, all have high shares of district heating and I suppose that's enabled them to integrate much higher levels of renewable uh, renewables into their system. So if you think about it, I suppose district heating networks are a bit like the electricity grids for the heating world. Um, so I suppose it's very complicated to switch every single building, every single home. Um, imagine if everybody had, I suppose, a diesel generator uh, before, you know, generating their electricity um, and trying to switch that all over to renewables. I suppose the, the benefit there being there's just a cable that comes into people's houses and they don't know where the electrons come from. You know, um, I suppose heat district heating has given them the same, that same, I suppose, freedom, like where the heat comes into their home, they're metered for the heat that they use. They don't care really where it comes from. It's on-demand hot water, like the way you have on-demand electricity. And in that way, we can, I suppose, and countries in Scandinavia have been able to integrate very large-scale uh, renewable um, heat sources and been able to feed them into the into the grid. Like, you know, for example, large-scale large CHP, you know, at the moment we're producing electricity and throwing away half of the, uh, you know, the fuel that goes into those thermal power plants in the form of waste heat. Um, so that's why I suppose a lot of our electricity is still so poorly, you know, uh, supply of electricity is, is so poor in terms of efficiency. So if we can, you know, like those other countries do, um, integrate that heat into the district heating network, supply that out, you know, there's tons of waste heat that we're throwing away at the moment that they're utilising and we're not. Um, and to come back to Dave's point there about, I suppose, how, and why they, I suppose, why they went down the route of district heating. You know, I used to joke saying that we needed a gas crisis, probably, you know, <laughs> because it was the oil crisis that I suppose helped them to move to district heating at the time. Um, so it was back in the, in the 60s and 70s when they decided, you know, look, we need to be moving away from oil. 
And as as David said, like, you know, they didn't build out the gas grids, they built out district heating networks instead. So I don't know whether the, the current prices of gas will be enough, I suppose, to kind of give the district heating um, sector the kind of impetus that it, that it requires now. So I guess... It, that's pretty recent in terms of development. So, like when we look at like our cities, uh, water systems, storage systems, etc., we're you know it's great that we get to benefit from the work that's been done in the past. Um, whereas this is uh, would be a very considerable undertaking for us to to take on now to go with district heating networks. Um, but looking at those examples, it's pretty recent history. Um, and is it a case that you know you talk about that that crisis element and? If this is done in Scandinavia, you know, surely Ireland is is prime. Yes, when we look at the historical stats, it was about 1% of your heat share per year they were able to convert. That was kind of a good proxy. So every year across probably four or five countries we looked at, Donna, there's mm. like a consistent build out where they, like traditionally from about the 70s, they were able to convert 1% of their heat every year to district heating as a kind of steady build out that started at probably in the mid-60s to 70s and in Scandinavia would have escalated over till about the 90s and then they reached an almost saturation point where they're probably starting to go into more suburban areas all the time now but the overall share is probably around 50 to 60% of their heat is now district heating. So that's kind of plateaued. And then, but, but the one point I think that's the most fascinating about the renewable heat world is compared to renewable electricity where we're trying to invent something or be the first to do something, for renewable heat, there's, a, there's an ocean of proven technology out there. Like the example I often say to people is, if I want to increase my renewable heat share, I can pick up the phone to a supply chain in Europe and ask them to send me a product. Like it's not, I don't have to ring up a research group or a, go to a lab to get something that might come in five or ten years. This is a supply chain and technologies, not just in the district heating world, but in the heat pump space as well, that, you know, it has factories there. Like only a month ago, I was over in Finland to visit an industrial heat pump factory, you know, that's spitting out fact- heat pumps every every week. It's not a, it's not the hydrogen story, if you know what I mean. Or there's a few others that, you know, there, there, there's something being developed that everyone kind of thinks will be the kind of magic bullet that will fix things. And sometimes that magic bullet can or take too much of the conversation rather than just saying, well, actually, what do we already have? And people underestimate, I think, what we already have and what it, what it can do. So if, if we have in a city, we have a district heating network and we have um, some parties who are feeding heat into it and uh, then consumers taking heat out, in terms of the heat, the heat that's fed into it, what's the, what's the typical makeup of the sources of heat feeding into a district well, I suppose in terms of hierarchy, what you'd be looking at is, I suppose, what's the lowest carbon and lowest cost. And at the moment, it's all the heat that we're throwing away. Um, so in Dublin alone, you know, there's enough heat being thrown away to actually heat the whole of Dublin. Uh, so between industrial units, uh, power plants, um, everything down to like... You know, I'm gonna myself and David lived in uh, in Ulbar in in Denmark, where they took the waste heat off a crematorium. Um, now, I know that's a, probably an extreme example. Fourth but generation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Literally, literally, nothing goes to waste. Um, 
well, you know, it's we've kind of mapped out uh, the whole of Dublin at the moment and we've looked at every single source of all the way from low temperature to high temperature. Um, so your power plants, you know, you're looking at temperatures up to, you know, 1900 degrees that you can take straight off the power plant. Um, whereas, you know, there's also lots of low temperature sources that we're throwing away, like heat from data centres, um, etc. So the um, like with lower source um, lower temperature sources we can use heat pumps uh, then uh, like the to the, boost them to boost them up the, the, the like the company that Dave's working with you know he, those large scale uh, heat pumps we can use those to boost up the temperatures of the waste heat to supply to buildings and as buildings become more efficient their temperature requirements come down so more of those lower source um, waste heat uh, supplies become more feasible let's say uh, to, to plug into the network geothermal for example you know we haven't explored that at all we've plenty of geothermal um, uh, you know sources and solutions that we could be tapping into but because of the expense I suppose of deep uh, deep cores and deep drilling for for geothermal it hasn't happened yet but district heating op- unlocks that whole sector for us but- it's very much back to what Donna was just saying earlier, though. The, what the district heating grid does is gives you flexibility to change what your supply is. So if you look at the, you know, the way we'd often talk in Ireland about the electricity mix, you know, and how it's changing. So it's getting from X percent wind this year to X percent the next year. Like in Scandinavia, they'd, you can look at historical district heating supply mixes and you can see almost from the mixes how the circumstances around them has changed depending on what mix is being used. So if you look at the, the 70s when the oil crisis was going on, coal was a very dominant fuel to supply the district heating systems. But then as the oil crisis eased off and the price of oil became less and less, you could see oil starting to come back in again. But next thing, the green revolution starts and you can see bioenergy starting to come in in the probably early 90s, late 90s. And all of a sudden the wind space starts to take off and then you start to see electric boilers come in because there's excess renewable electricity being produced and the district heating goes, oh, that's cheap power, let's let's use that. And then as the number of operating hours of excess wind goes up, heat pumps suddenly become more economical. So instead of using a 100% efficient electric boiler, a 400% heat pump with a higher capex is now a better thing to put in a district heating network. So you can see over this... And actually, one of the other things that might surprise you is solar thermal is one of the major contributors, especially in more smaller towns, even in Denmark. So there's there's one town in South Denmark that has 50% of its annual heat load coming from solar thermal on a district heating system. So they've built a big solar thermal field with what is effectively a big pool of water as a storage, and they literally heat up the storage pit in the summer and use it in the winter for, for their heating. But you, so that that mix is, I'd say its biggest asset is its flexibility because you can, as Donna mentioned, like the electricity system, you can change what it is without the customer ever realizing you've done it. Depending on what fuel prices, carbon prices, and everything else is around you, and that's kind of the the benefit of it. You, yeah. you get that flexibility. And, and even within day, it's interesting to think that a windy day in the UK in GB would drop the electricity prices and it would ultimately drop the price of heating or homes in Ireland. Oh, completely, yeah. Like there, There's a plenty of examples in Denmark where, you know, there might be a calm day today, but the thermal storage is supplying our heat because it was filled up yesterday when it was windy. Yeah. You know, so you, you, have, you have electricity being produced 24 hours ago, heating my home today, because that electricity would have been worth nothing if the heat pump or electric boiler wasn't in the district heating system, it would have been lost. So that's where flexibility and smart use of yeah. our electricity and responding, responding to high wind production and low electricity prices 
rather than like in Ireland right now, we're losing two terawatt hours of power due to dispatch down. That's yeah. that's that's wind farms producing power that we are just wasting and, and not using and has already been paid for. It and happens to be the target for yeah. district heating by 2030 is to, well, 2.7 terawatt hours. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, these are the kind of things we can match. And I one of the key points about the thermal storage is it's the cheapest form of energy storage we have. So obviously batteries are quite expensive, um, whereas a storage tank is just steel with a bit of insulation wrapped around it. a hundred times like, cheaper, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's their heat batteries, let's say, um, that we could be utilising very easily and very cheaply uh, to, to supply that flexibility to the, has all the advantages, I suppose, for the electricity grid as well as the heat sector. And just, when you go back, Paddy, to why we didn't do it, just to, like a funny story for you is like in the late noughties, I remember the first times ever presenting about district heating, the funny thing that I saw happen around then was there was almost a dangerous consensus of the unknown in the sense that people would be in a room and would almost everyone would agree district heating wasn't possible, but no one actually measured it. Do you know what I mean? There was this dangerous consensus of, oh, no, no, sure, that wouldn't make sense. And then you'd say, well, what evidence is there that it doesn't make sense? Oh, sure, it just doesn't. You know, we, we never, like no one had ever like actually checked. <laughs> it was just kind of like, oh, it's not cold enough. And you're like, well, that's a bit of a assumption to make without anyone actually those, doing a study. Like. Those assumptions were probably uh, as well floated around by certain uh, sectors who didn't want to see district heating um, necessarily come in and replace their sales of gas. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I, like, it's it's extraordinary to think the lack think about the lack of joint up thinking, even so. You, even on a small scale, so I've seen uh, examples of cold storage refrigeration warehouses that are dumping heat from their warehouses and then electrically heating the offices that are adjoining, their own offices <laughs> yeah. that are adjoining. And that's standard. Yeah, right? that's standard. And that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's typical. Like, so even in terms of like your, your own reuse of heat and the potential. But Don, you know, it's, it, when you talk about, you know, when you, when you were highlighting the kind of that merit order, mm. um, it's, it sounds like the mantras that we've gotten used to uh, with recycling, with waste, yeah, right? Yeah. Because it's about, uh, to first of all, try to reduce, um, then reuse what's already there. And I suppose the equivalent of recycling is the ability to actually change the grade of heat yeah. as well. Yeah. And I suppose then from um, when you electrify the heat, so that last step, right? if, you, if, you, if you are electrifying the heat, that then is benefiting from the renewable energy in the electricity sector. and That's currently being wasted. That's currently been, a lot of it being wasted. Mm. And not only that, but I guess that when you use a heat pump rather than using a gas boiler, you reduce your final heating requirements by two thirds, right? You use about At least, a third. you would say, yeah. At least, at least. Yeah. So you use, so at, the, at present Ireland uses twice as much, has twice as much heat demand as electrical demand. But the, that actual, for the delivery of the, of the energy into that heating sector, it could become smaller than electricity and, 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 and leverage off it. Which I Absolutely. And if you want to, this is not a theoretical thing, you can get on a plane and go two hours and see how it's already been done. You know, Zin, it's yeah. not a, it's not an idea. No. Well, you could also get into Tallinn now soon. Yeah, of <laughs> On the loose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, so, you know, Donna, you're involved in a project um, in Tala, um, where... It's actually, uh, you know, given everything that we've talked about, it's it's nearly funny to think that we need a demonstrator. You know, we need something to demonstrate this locally, given that the uh, the examples are already there, you know, to, to really 
on, on full scale. Yeah, but it's still such a foreign concept, I suppose, yeah. to us in Ireland. You know, um, even in even when I when I went over to live in Denmark, I knew nothing about this reading beforehand. Yeah. And I remember going around the the house looking for the the boiler and the, yeah. the hot press. I was yeah. like, how does the heat turn on? You know, and just so in for context, you the waste heat from a data center because a data center in reality, like. It it converts electricity to heat, basically, yeah. and Everything through that the goes proce- in. through the process of and conver- bits and bytes and bits <laughs> and bytes, yeah. But, but but the bits and bytes aren't reducing its efficiency; it's heat efficiency. Yeah. It's yeah. that rather than it just being a bar heater, in the process of producing the heat, it happens to do all of this computation and storage, etc. Um, and we are, you know. Everyone's very aware of the number of data centers we currently yeah. have in Ireland, the strain that they're putting on the electricity system, and and you know that there's a desire to bring more on uh, in, in in some regards, or uh, certainly a desire from the data center industry yeah. to to, to yeah. join. But you know, it'd be great if you could talk us through this this because it means that they can actually be a key contributor to. Uh, to our heating sector? Yeah, I mean, they're one of the the kind of biggest uh, waste heat sources that we have at the moment, particularly in Dublin. So I suppose it's a good match. Um, usually kind of industries and that will be kind of located far away from, you know, you don't want your waste incinerator beside your cities normally. Um, we're lucky to get the one that we did in Dublin City Centre in that location. But um, usually they're put far away. And I suppose data centres all follow, um, I think it's called the T50, I think it's the name of the, the kind of the fibre network around the Dublin region. So they're all very close to obviously heat demands. So it's the, it's the location of the, the, obviously the heat supply and the heat demand together. And what we did in Tallow was, you know, there was a new phase being built of a, an Amazon Web Services uh, centre in the middle of, in the middle of Tallow on the top of Belgard Road. We had already been uh, looking at the technical feasibility of district heating in that area because um, South Dublin County Council's buildings, we had the uh, Tala Hospital, we had um, uh, TUD campus there. And I suppose those kind of key public sector buildings are, are kind of what we would call anchor loads for a, net, for a network. So they're the kind of ones you tap into first, you get them on board and you can kind of connect everything in between them. I started to grow the network off the back of those. So um, the data centre then, I suppose, had a planning requirement that you know, the waste heat would be provided to a network um, when it was built. So the data centre then gives off about 25 degree uh, waste heat. Um, obviously, the buildings, existing buildings anyway, that we're, we're retrofitting uh, for district heating require, you know, 70, 80 degrees. So we boost that then through. So the energy centre is being built and in there that's going to have large scale heat pumps. Um, so three megawatts of heat pumps. Um, and backup electric boilers. So there's no gas on site, no fossil fuels on site, no f- flues, no nothing. Um, so that obviously transforms the low temperature waste heat from the data centre, boosts that up to the required temperatures. Um, and we can obviously higher and lower that then for summer and winter as well. So there's that kind of flexibility. Um, and then we take out the gas boilers in the existing buildings and replace them with heat exchangers. So I said one of the van- advantages for the consumer then as well is you've just got a heat exchanger. You've no gas connection. You have no boiler. You have no carbon monoxide risks. You have no all those safety issues that come with combusting fuels like on site so I suppose all those buildings now have extra space that they can use um, and then as soon as you know it's like build it and they will come so it, like I mean every developer that's looking at doing or building anything around that area now are all asking us when can we connect to the district heating network because the advantages for them are huge you know they don't have to invest in 
any on-site uh, renewables to meet their renewable requirements, they can basically tap into the renewable elements from the district heating network. Uh, so again, the developer saves space, um, saves money on the, you know, the, it's just a heat exchanger. Very, very small. I mean, this take about half a car park space for an apartment block. You know, is the size of the the unit required the the kind of heat substation, uh, so no hassle then for them. You know, in terms of supplying heat to you know the gas boilers into each uh, into each apartment. You know, none of those issues. So for them, yeah, we're getting inundated with requests to, to know when they can connect. So and the nugget on top that it's nicer to live in a house with this yes, heating, yeah, which is yeah. like you know sometimes everyone thinks decarbonisation comes at a lifestyle cost. Like both of us have lived in homes with district heating. It's a far more enjoyable thing to live with. You have literally 24-7 on-demand heating and hot water. So you just pay in the same way that you pay for electricity for whatever you need. Instead of now having to go and turn on an immersion or turn on a boiler because you need some heat, you just turn on the tap and you get hot water and you pay if you use it and you don't if you don't and for heating the same. Mm-hmm. And Renewable Energy Ireland published a vision paper, uh, 40 by 30, to... Um, to achieve, setting out an ambition to achieve 40% of our heat from renewable sources by 2030. Um, but this, it sounds, first of all, like that certainly in the Dublin area, there's there's enough waste heat really to satisfy that. Um, but clearly you need additional sources also feeding in in terms of ensuring reliability and flexibility, etc. Et as well. Um, but... Surely there's other solutions they needed for rural area, rural environments as well um, in terms of how it is that we heat those. But before we kind of come on to that, I'm, I'm keen to, if we continue to focus on the district heating side um, for just a second, how does it work in practice? Like, so what do you do? Like, so Dublin, Dublin wasn't built recently <laughs> and the, the housing stock in Dublin certainly wasn't built recently and there's not much being built, the, uh, enough being built at the moment. But in terms of with the existing housing stock, what what is the plan? How do you actually integrate um, district heating network into our cities and then connect it to our homes? Well, I suppose the connecting to the homes part is quite easy, I suppose, particularly in Ireland because we have a lot of water-based systems. So if you have a water-based heating system, it's, it's you know, they can connect together quite easily. You're just As in radiators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're switching out your gas boiler for your heat exchanger, basically. Um, now, if you're electrically heated, it's obviously harder to do, you know, because you don't have those radiators, you don't have those that, that kind of plumbing system in place. Um, but I suppose, luckily in Ireland, most of our buildings are based on gas, gas central heating. Wouldn't um, be the case in France, for example, there'd be a lot of electric heating in France, yes, so they wouldn't have yeah. radiators, they'd have electric heating. So they'd have to do the double thing of not just the okay. boiler being replaced, but also putting in a wet system, a radiator system. Which is not un- insurmountable either. Like, I mean, there's great examples in Scotland uh, where they had, so Aberdeen Heat and Power built a whole district heating network, uh, switching over electrically heated apartments. Well, I've um, done it in my house. And you did it in your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these electrically heated apartments uh, were risk of fuel poverty. Um, so there were social housing blocks that all had cheap um, storage heaters put in at the time, thrown in at the time, which are notoriously hard to control and use and expensive and everything else. So uh, they switched all those blocks. So their, their primary objective was to switch those over, I suppose, and that was the driver for that district heating network. So again, it's not that's not, it's like obviously harder to do, but I suppose, again, we're in a kind of a, an easier situation where our systems are water-based. So on the customer end, it's quite easy to retrofit. Um, one of the advantages as well, I suppose, of 
if say in your house now, if you wanted to, you know, you've an old, like I just said, Dublin's housing stock is old. You know, uh, the average rating is D2. Um, and so there's a, a huge chunk of E's, F's and G's in there. Um, so if you're sitting in a house that's been built in the, the 40s or 50s and you want to put in a renewable solution now, you have to do the whole insulation upgrade as well to get your heat pump to, to um, work efficiently and to qualify for all the grants. Whereas you could plug into district heating tomorrow and decarbonize 80% of your, of your energy use because 80% of your energy use is heat. So, I mean, it's a real quick win in terms of decarbonization. And then you can go and do you know, bits of insulation and improvements on the fabric. But in terms of, I suppose, and this was one of the, the results of the SEAI uh, heat study was that, you know, I know everybody said like the energy efficiency first approach is like the right way to go. But in terms of um, they showed that because uh, they, they layered in behavioural studies onto that uh, study as well, which is the first time, because usually it's just done in a cost, uh, cost per CO2 basis. But they showed that at the rate that of change in terms of retrofits, we won't get to the 2030 targets. Like So district heating would enable us to, I suppose, uh, have that kind of that speed to decarbonise first and then go back and kind of reduce the demand afterwards. So um, it's a plug, it's because it's a plug and play situation, you know. So it's the, it's the pipes in the ground that we're missing. It's, it's that connecting piece. The heat sources are there. You know, as I said, like there's plenty of heat sources being thrown away. There's geothermal we could tap into and um, and heat pumps, you know, ready to, to be plugged in. Um, there's just no pipes in the ground to connect them. So everybody's just waiting for that piece of the puzzle to be. And it's it, I suppose the delay is like who should be doing it? Who's going to build it? Where's the money going to come from? Who owns it? Because at the moment, like, well, up until very recently, the gas was very cheap. So to make it commercially attractive to put in a huge capital upfront capital cost on a network you know what I mean it's a big ask for like nobody in the private sector is going to come and do that because we've no they've no guarantee of customers and they're competing with very cheap gas prices so you know you, you have to there has to be some kind of subsidy in place um, and it needs to be rolled out in the same way that our gas networks are rolled out and our electricity networks are rolled out as an essential public infrastructure um, and once those pipes are in place it opens up investment for the private sector in both the supply side and the consumer side so then turning to so turning from the urban environment to the rural environment um, what are the solutions available there so everything at the moment is certainly focused on the way I always kind of break it down is if you take the heat sector at a very top level, you have about 50 terawatt hours of demand, 30 is buildings, 20 is industry. So the 30 that's buildings is about 50% district heating, 50% heat pumps, and the whole building stock will probably be able to reduce its demand by 20 to 30%. So that's your, your magic sauce of how you decarbonize the building sector without getting into the granularity of loads of other things that can do smaller shares, if you're just taking the, the big chunks uh, that are going to deliver 80% of your effort, your, 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 your buildings are going to be district heating in the cities, heat pumps in the countryside, and then some savings that the buildings will... Like, the likes of the EFs and Gs that Donna mentioned, like, it's so easy to put a bit of insulation in the attic, and your return is really good, that you're always going to get some level of energy efficiency savings in homes but there's almost a kind of self-sabotage and reduction as you do more and more savings because the more you do the less value you get for the next one you do and people really historically have overestimated what energy efficiencies can actually deliver that way because they've almost looked at well it you know if we just get rid of demand then our problems are solved but if you look at the cost of it it goes up so high as you get rid of the low-hanging fruit 
that as a building stock, you tend to stop at 20 or 30% of, of an overall national heat saving reduction. And so it doesn't get you to like a zero carbon. It just takes a piece off the top. So if you take that piece off the top with the savings, urban areas, district heating, rural areas, heat pumps, normal standard heat pumps, but there's still 20 terawatt hours of the heat sector over on the industrial side. And that's, that's, a, that's, a note, that's probably what Astatine does, the company I'm with day to day. And that's, that's probably heat pumps only up to a certain temperature level. So heat pumps are probably only going to be viable up to about 150 to 200 degrees Celsius as, as a solution. That's about 50% of the industrial heat market. And then beyond that 50% of the industrial heat market, you're going to need, I would imagine, some kind of clean fuel. So a bioenergy fuel or a hydrogen fuel or some kind of some kind of fuel that's a zero or low carbon fuel because you probably at that point need to start burning something to get the temperature levels that you need. And is there a temperature there where electro boilers also take over yeah, for a range? No, absolutely, yeah. No, there is. Electro boilers can definitely do that. I suppose the, the, the trade-off with electro boilers is that they can tend to be requiring very, very large chunks of power for, for, for from a... Ver- like, so you'd need a really strong grid connection, a really strong user. But no, they, they definitely could. What share? I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I, I don't have the kind of good visibility of... What share of the above 200 degrees C could electro do versus fuel? But no, definitely, Paddy, they could absolutely play a, a big role in that space for sure. And so when we look at the different grades of heat, I suppose in terms of like, it's both the environment and the use case for the heat, you know. So we have the, you know, the ideally reduce, but then our reuse, um, recycle in terms of change, yeah. change the grade of it. Um, we have, so we have our ability to have district heating networks take waste heat from uh, in, in, in certainly urban environments, and then we have our, our heat pumps also feed, feeding into that, but we have our heat pumps in our rural environment. Um, uh, when we go then to higher grades of heat, then uh, I suppose even for industrial sectors, so heat pumps f- will deliver up to much higher temperatures than we need in a residential environment for um, for industrial. And then you have your electrode boilers, and then at last resort, you're burning something. And exactly, ideally, it's a, yeah. ideally, it's a biofuel that you're burning at that point, or, or some renewable... Renewable, yeah, fuel. like uh, hydrogen produced from renewable electricity. Yeah, could be the, but they are. That's a very good way of putting it. That's your kind of priority order, as, as you mentioned. So you're you're trying to get the maximum efficiency one first, which is like your heat pump. But that can't do. That can only go to a certain point. Then you get your maximum efficiency is your electrode boiler using clean electricity because it's a hundred percent. But then you're moving to hydrogen, which is probably only sixty percent efficient in terms of producing it with the same electricity you could have used through an electrode a boiler. And then bioenergy potentially as an alternative to hydrogen if you can't get the hydrogen from a from a clean source. But the, the the magic of the like just to flag there again, it's back to if you looked at what Sweden, Finland, Denmark, a number of Germany, what they have done, it's kind of like the district heating story. That industrial heat pump is not new. That that's that's thirty years ago. The electro boiler is not new. Norway has a number of those. But the hydrogen piece is very new, you know. That, so it's just to be careful of putting them in the same list because two of them have been around for 30, 40 years and have yeah. been yeah. like that. That's back to I can pick up a phone and order an electro boiler. I can pick up the phone and order an industrial heat pump. I can't pick up the phone and order an industrial grade hydrogen production facility tomorrow that will be able to do what I wanted to do. And, and bioenergy, you can to some degree, but there's the, the supply chain for that would be is nearly as complicated as as the technology piece you could say, but it is it is absolutely there. But th- that that's probably the thing that is so important to emphasise about renewable heat 
it's it's at a phase where we're so bad. The good thing of being so bad is you can literally do so much by just doing what's already there. And I suppose when you look at those lists, district heating in urban areas, heat pumps for rural buildings, industrial heat pumps, electro boilers, them four are absolutely all sitting there, proven, well established, and and can be done. Like like even as Donna said, the Tala district heating system will use an industrial heat pump because it's not a new technology. It's it's been around for for for, for years. So that's a that that's the real upside of being on the bottom. Last yeah. place, yeah, yeah, exactly. And in terms of the integration, it sounds like the integration is reasonably straightforward. Certainly, when we talk about the district heating system it's uh, it's in contrast to the other areas that we're tackling to integrate renewable energy into other sectors so electricity and otherwise that it has bigger gains because it's a bigger problem and it's it's reasonably um easy to integrate given given the uh the the heating solutions that are already in the current uh housing stock um when you look at in the industrial application and the integration of either heat pumps, electrode boilers, there, how does it fit in with their existing So it's, uh, it's phenomenally easy compared to what people, when you arrive on site, think it is. So I can't tell you how many sites I've arrived to and I've been told at the gate, oh, I, I, there's certainly nothing you could do here. I think this site is too good. And you go in and you're like, well, you have 70 degrees sea water going to a cooling tower here and you need 90 degrees sea water over there a heat pump could get a COP of seven or eight, boosting that. You know, so, so, but they think that's 70 degrees. It's useless to us. We need 90. We can't use it. Like, I, like I, I've, seen, I've seen sites throw away 90-degree water and not think it's useful for them. The most common, in fairness, is very much like what Donna mentioned with the data centre. We, we, the most common thing we'd see is temperature ranges of 30 to 35 degrees, up to 40 maybe being thrown away. That, that's like... Every site I go on, there's a 35, 40 degree waste heat stream just going down the drain. Ironically, would you believe, which is you're sitting there kind of pinching yourself. I can't tell you how many sites I've been on and the client is telling us we have a discharge temperature problem. In other words, we're trying to put in cooling towers to reduce the temperature of which we're discharging water. At the same time, we're producing megawatts of hot water at 60, 70, 80 degrees C. And then the, the really amazing part is that 70, 80 degrees C water is being produced from a boiler that they're producing 160 degrees steam with to produce 70, 80 degree hot water. So you have a, a, a cold source going down the drain that they're building a cooling tower for to solve going out into a river or wherever they're sending it so that it's cool enough. You have a steam boiler using gas or LPG to produce 160 degree C hot water that's then our steam to produce 80 degree hot water. And, 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 the, and the amazing thing is that you can sometimes even see these things are right beside each other. So you can literally put a heat pump in the middle and go, well, I'll solve your cooling load by soaking that up by the heat pump and I'll reduce your gas use by now producing your hot water or whatever need it would be. Up to that limit, though, that's where like existing heat pump technology is probably capping out at 130 degrees C. So you're, you, you are able to do... A portion, but it's a very significant portion. It, like you, you would see sometimes on sites, you know, 50, 60 percent of their entire heat load would be that level of hot water use. But, but the, there's a funny situation there where they're convinced there's nothing you can do. You know, like it's not that they think the technology, like oh, we've looked at it and we've we've had people in and we've scoped it out. It's just as I said to you, the danger of common consensus. 
it's, it's like this common consensus can form where without looking at something, everyone is telling each other it doesn't work and nobody has actually said, well, maybe we should actually measure it and check it. Well, I, I guess, though, there is, you know, an element where people have the message that um, heat pumps are, are low, low temperature heating mm. systems, you know. So, so yeah. you know, that's what people have heard in terms of how they need to upgrade their houses, etc., is to go for a low temperature heating system. And maybe, maybe it's called the wrong thing. Maybe I a heat completely pump needs agree. to be called a heat multiplier. And it's, 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 it's definitely called the wrong thing because, as Donna mentioned with the data center, your heat source there is 25 degrees C water, whereas in a home your heat source is air. You know, it could be minus 10 degrees C outside air. So, like in an industry in the middle of December, they're still running their production process. So you're still in the middle of winter getting 25 you know, in the data centre in the middle of winter for the Tala district heating system will still likely throw out 25 degrees C water for the heat pump to use. And that's where, as you said, Paddy, it does need a different name. And it's it's like as if heat pump is used in a context where you have a really poor supply and it's also used in the context where you have a really good supply. But then they all get mushed in together and people kind of perceive it then as something yeah. com- collective. And the, the core technology is the same thing, but the... The, the performance of it, the application of it is totally different, if you know what I mean. So it's yeah. a, it, it is, it'd be wonderful if, if you could just like rebrand the whole yeah. sector. <laughs> and get the message out there that, yeah, have people understand that it, it multiplies your heat uh, by a factor that's greater than the amount of energy you need to put into it to do it. Exactly. Like it. And you're typically key. looking at four to five, at least in most of the sites we're looking at. So you put in one unit of electricity, and I'm sure the TALA scheme is probably in a similar ballpark you'll get four times the 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 heat out of it and that's because there's already that the heat source coming into yeah so really what it's doing it's it's actually um it's soaking in heat at a low temperature and then the electricity is boosting the temperature of that heat so you're you're actually you're not creating energy obviously thermodynamics is still there but you're just boosting the temperature of the energy that's within the heat pump and it's much more efficient i suppose to have one large heat pump say in a district heating system where you have people operating it who really know how to use it who control it all day and can vary you know what i mean they understand how it works whereas in you're putting these new technologies into people's homes who've never don't know how to use them, don't know how, how to operate them. They're not being serviced properly. You know, uh, it, you know, if you have thousands of those instead of one large one that's being, you know, operated re- at top efficiency all day. Like, I mean, the contract we have with the operators and the TALIS system is linked to the efficiency. So it's an energy, it's it, like there's energy performance built into the contract. So it's, it's their incentive to always make sure that system operates as efficiently as possible 24-7. And just to give you an idea, Patty, there was over a thousand megawatts of large scale heat pumps on the district heating systems in Sweden in the 80s. In the, in the 80s, like, so we're, what, 30 odd years later, more than 30 odd years later, you know, we're putting in the first one as a demo in, in, in Ireland. So it's, 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 it's like, there's just to, again, to try and emphasize that broken record point I keep making. It's proven stuff. It's not like we're trying to, you know, the demo is maybe because we are not used to it. It's not because the technology is... Yeah, used to it, yeah. You know. we could we could ha- nearly have. A t- there's so much interest in the Dallas game. I had a joke with the the guys in South Dublin that we could have a a, a kind of a, t- a tour, a permanent tour guide <laughs> there to bring people in and out all day, like uh, because they just yeah, it's a, like it's so it's such a still a foreign concept uh, to us here. That's that's uh, that's extraordinary. And um, when people from the Nordics visit Ireland and just get these entire misconceptions and hear the entire misconceptions it must be just entirely alien it is but the funny thing is like when i was out doing that tour where i went to visit the industrial heat pump plant in finland you know what was really i suppose in a way reassuring but interesting they started at the exact same point we did you know like one of the first plants that the company i was visiting did was 
it was a large meat processing plant where the chiller was literally next door to the boiler. So, so they did start from the same, I suppose, like realization that why are we doing things in this inefficient way? Just a long time Just ago. Just a long time so ago. So visit Ireland must be like a time machine yeah, experience going back very much time. so, yeah. 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 And, and to be honest, what they do then is they're educating us. Like, you know, yeah. they're, like we're sitting there going, oh no, we, we went to this site and they thought this wasn't possible. Uh, well, well, here's a site from 20 years ago if you want to have a look at it and it's installed in 2005. And, and sometimes they get jealous of us though because I suppose there's so many things that they could do if they yeah. wish they could start off with a clean slate course, and kind of yeah. go, oh, well, I, I would have done this if we had a known like And their home markets ago. are somewhat saturated, if you yeah. know what I mean. Like even the companies in district heating that we often deal with and the heat pump market, they're coming here because, you know, like Sweden yeah, exactly. is 65% renewable heat. Yeah. You know, you know, it's 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 an incredibly and we're starting with higher temperature sources to start. So it's in terms of like the benefit here is, is is we can achieve more. We can leapfrog in terms of the technologies and that. And you know, we spoke earlier about you know when when we were chatting about the residential sector, what people the experience there is going to be that people will be changing out their source of heating. Whereas when you deal with the industrial sector, the industrial sector is far more uh, risk sensitive. Um, so when the renewable heating systems are brought into the, the uh, in industrial spaces. Is it a case that it's in line with their existing heating systems? So it's oh, almost always. It's, it's yeah. almost always. It's so always it's, because the thing is, it's not just the benefit. They're not just getting. And actually, this has become very top of mind in the last few months, especially. It's not just a carbon reduction and a cost reduction. It's a resiliency benefit now. So now all of a sudden you have a dual heating system. So that, again, you could almost say it is done in parallel, but not just because they're worried about the renewable heat system. It's actually because it's bringing an additional benefit to the, the, the company. So if you imagine they're putting in, like let's say we've looked at projects with three-year paybacks, right? And the three-year payback is an absolute no-brainer because the price of, let's say, LPG or gas is so high now. But a natural question they'll often say is, but what about gas goes down really low in a couple of years if things change again? And you're saying, well, this, this technology has a 20-year lifetime. If, if, if within 20 years you expect to have a gas price higher in terms of ratio than, than electricity at this level, this will pay itself off in that 20 years. Now, like, now that's a incredibly high probability situation you're looking at there. Like, as in, we're not saying, like, if some things change dramatically, like we've seen dramatic change in the last 12 months, and all of a sudden LPG or, or gas drops off a cliff for some unknown reason, and then all of a sudden you're feeling a bit exposed, well, just switch back to your fossil fuel if you feel cost is the absolute driver for there. you. You can then switch over to the heat pump again in a year's time, when because there's whatever about there being, like, even I would argue there's a small chance of... LPG or gas prices going off a cliff in the future for quite a long time. But if you do feel that that's the case, the probability of that happening on a regular basis over the next 20 years with carbon taxes and security supply issues is incredibly small. So you get that kind of resilient, like resiliency where you can switch now between fuel sources, you know, and, and like what you do, Paddy, with demand response, it could even be down to the granular scale of, well, this is a windy day tomorrow. Let's use the heat pump. This is an incredibly tight middle of winter. Power supplies are tight. There's there's all sorts of extra costs because it's peak tomorrow compared to what it was a month ago. Let's use the heat pump. Let's turn off the heat pump for a week because this is a very high power price period. And let's just use the gas or LPG for that period. And from a carbon point of view, now you might be getting an 80, 90% of the year you're using the low carbon source. That's an incredibly positive step forward compared to using gas or LPG 100% of the year, if you know what I mean. So you mightn't be getting 
you're, you're giving customers that benefit from a purely cost point of view, but from a carbon, you're making a huge impact, even though you mightn't be getting it all the way. It's still very good. From the customer point of view, minimal regret cost. Uh, yeah, minimal, you know, especially in the current context. Yeah. You know. And, you know, with what we do at Viotas, I at night I dream of new sources of flexibility on the grid. So how can we use the electricity customers to provide services to the grid? Um, and there's a real double bubble benefit in, uh, in the element of the he- renewable heat that you're, that's coming from electricity because... We previously, particularly in the residential sector, we never had many discretionary loads. So mm. demand response and consumer participation uh, in other countries like in the US has been quite high in the residential side because of air conditioning, mm. where the, the problem is mm. also a potential solution. Because when it comes to providing flexibility where it's important to reduce the customer's demand at a particular time or otherwise, in our homes at the moment, really, our peak in the evening, in the evening we're, we're cooking, it's the lights on, it's, you know, we need uh, it's entertainment to keep the kids quiet. Uh, we need it. Um, whereas um, now when you electrify heat, uh, we now have this really malleable um, uh, load that can provide flexibility to the grid. Yeah. And so it's not only benefiting from the renewable content in the electricity, it gives back flexibility that allows grid operators to use more to integrate more renewable energy in the first place, so it end, ends up increasing it. So, like the benefits, just the, the benefits seem huge. Obviously, there's, there's a, a, there will be a massive road to getting um, to where we need to go in terms of uh, policy direction, uh, right down to implementation. And I suppose you know, I'm really in, intrigued to explore where policy is at. And we have, to, I think, we have to acknowledge that with major changes that you know, because of voting cycles, the lifespan of a politician can be quite short, potentially. And they're always looking at that. And what is going to, um, you know, maximum, you know, what, what's the maximum that they can do that doesn't reduce their chances going forward? So um, uh, in being able to come into the next government. So we need, for true major ambition, I, I think we need European policy that, that transcends. That's where European policy, I think, is key because it transcends governments and iterations of governments and politicians, yeah. etc. But it has to go Europe, then down to government level, a national policy level, and then down to implementation. I think the government at the moment are working on the first heat policy for Ireland, um, which would be a huge step change. You know, I mean, it's the first time that there's, there's going to be a... A, a blueprint f- for what will happen in the heat sector and hopefully that will transcend past the the, the next three you know up, um, longer than the next three years and longer than this current government um like we haven't seen anywhere like i mean the last couple of years the change in support for district heating has been massive like you know that we were back when um remember there's there was a white paper uh i think it was when alex white or somebody was in and there was like one mention of district heating as a word th- and it was something like we may think about investigating sometime in the future uh looking at district heat you know and it was never nothing was ever done done on it um but now we have the sei's heat study which says you know which backs up our own um irish district energy association uh, figures that says you know about 50% of Ireland's heat could come from district heating, is feasible for district heating. Um, so that now is feeding into all government policy. Uh, they have established a, a district heating unit in the department. Uh, there's dedicated staff now. There's a steering group that meets every month um, that, you know, that I sit on with the, with a group of other people in across, across departmental group who are helping us to get through all the barriers and all the policy issues and everything like that because I suppose the current minister... And it really wants to drive this, like really 
feels very passionately about it and, you know, really wants to see this happen within his term. Like So I suppose we're just trying to take advantage of that at the moment and that, you know, that kind of bit of drive behind it and push as much through, stuff through as we can in the next three years and get everything kind of set up that we can actually start to roll this out at, at large scale. I think with, with a lot of the initiatives that have been taken by the current government, you know, we really hope that we see that that term continue on and continue yeah. on because yeah. the cha- there's been just a, an absolute sea change in terms of the attitude towards uh, towards the delivery of solutions and not just talking about solutions but delivering them, getting the plans in place. And sorry. yeah, well, I'd say as well, it was probably a very fortunate thing that the Green Party got in just before the crisis came. Yeah. In the sense that what I mean there is, had that not momentum not started a couple of years ago we would probably would only start scrambling for ideas now. Yeah. Whereas I think what happened was a lot of the foundations of what we should be doing were in the background and then the crisis made everyone go, okay, now we should actually do them rather than yeah. delay them. So, uh, But with the current crisis now, that's uh, the, the current um, uh, situation in Ukraine has now drawn people's attention um, to the fact that uh, decarbonisation and reducing energy consumption isn't an altruistic effort, that there's a direct link between our energy security and our national sovereignty and that this is absolutely critical. And I think the focus as well, like, you know, I think we've, you know, the the country's been guilty of having that focus on electricity before. And I think, you know, this crisis has shown that how much energy we use and how much fossil fuels we use in transport and heat because that's what affects everybody's everyday lives, you know. Um, so I think that's helped to kind of redistribute the focus a little bit. And heat is a critical utility. The cold can kill you. Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. it has done. You know, there's been, you know, speaking of the Ukraine, like when Russia turned off the gas about seven, eight years ago, I think it was, there was a correlation to deaths then at the time where it was in the middle of winter. And, you know, if you don't have heat, it's it's a very dangerous thing. You know, electricity can, in, if it's not heat, electricity is providing, it's often, I suppose, beneficial things, but not right to the core of survival whereas heat is, is very much there. But I, I must commend, like, the SEI do just release a national heat study, and I, I always call it the all-island grid story moment when I make the parallel to the electricity sector. It feels like it's that. Like, I suppose you can remember back as well, Paddy, when that came out, you know, you, you'd hoped that it was going to then lead to lots of things from it, and there's no guarantee it would, but it did. You know, in the electricity sector, it really did. Like, we did get refit, we got grid gate three, we got kind of a real focus on then moving forward. So that this new national heat study from SEAI, it does flag district heating as critical in urban areas, heat pumps in rural areas, industrial heat pumps up to 200 degrees C. And then it does mention above that things like electro boilers, hydrogen, bioenergy need a kind of better understanding of exactly what they'll contribute and things like that. So it, it is putting in place things that I would have said for, in my, in my mind, would have been very sensible things to do to get us off bottom of the pile mm-hmm. You know, there's there's really great stuff in there. So this is really the precursor to us getting to binding targets and then to implementation. Let's hope so. You know, yeah. let's hope so. Let's hope it's the evidence base now that the All Island Grid study was to put us world leading in renewable electricity. So if you, you know the way you started this was asking what were the parallels that got us there, this is probably at least step zero of the parallel that worked so well with renewable and electricity. And it's very uh, aligned with what happened in those Scandinavian mm. countries back in the 60s and 70s. They brought in very strong heat policy, very strong heat acts. And actually that word heat act has been dropped into conversation uh, with the department. Like that. So I think you know that's, that's one of the expected outcomes from this heat policy as well. Um, whereas if we have those kind of, that same kind of foundation uh, there, like, you know, we can start to see the kind of, hopefully, the scale-up of change. Uh, Donna, David, it's been brilliant to get to talk through this because I've been siloed in the electricity 
market and, and bringing you into the heat world <laughs> and uh, willingly very willingly very willingly so you know and i had no i suppose in in the lead up to this i i didn't appreciate the scale of the challenge but also the massive opportunity that's that exists to um use heat to make a very significant contribution towards our overall uh, decarbonization objectives so it's been really interesting to get to talk that through so thank you very thanks much thanks for having us thanks for having us thank you